Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. After hosting a dinner party at her condo in San Francisco, Lisa Valdez said goodbye to her final guest and closed the door. Days later, she was found dead on the floor of her apartment. Despite DNA and a fingerprint being left at the scene, it would take 13 years for investigators to finally find her killer. This is Monsters. Thirty-six-year-old Lisa Valdez lived on her own in a condo in San Francisco. Her friends described her as being a ball of energy, a caring social person who would do anything to make her friends and family happy. On May 16, 1998, Lisa invited some of her loved ones over for a dinner party. Several of her guests stayed late after dinner was finished, and at midnight, the last guest, Lisa's mother Helen, went home. The next day, Lisa failed to show up for her dance class, a regular commitment that she went to every Sunday. Later that day, one of her neighbors got home after spending the weekend out of town. He discovered that the deadbolt of his locked condo door had been bent, the door's metal frame had been pushed out of shape, and there was a smear of something on the door that appeared to be blood. The neighbor was concerned enough to call the building's manager and let them know that somebody had tried to break in while he was away but he didn't call the police. On Monday the 18th, Lisa's housekeeper arrived at the condo at 10 a.m. like usual. She had her own key to the door, but when she unlocked it, she was unable to push it open. There was no deadbolt in place. Something heavy was blocking the door from opening all the way. The housekeeper was able to peer through the door and saw what looked like a naked woman lying on the floor. She also heard an unknown male voice coming from inside the condo. Thinking that she was interrupting something, the housekeeper quickly left. Two days later, the building manager went to the unit to investigate reports of a strong odor coming from inside. After finding the door was unlocked, he walked inside where he found the body of Lisa Valdez lying on the floor of her condo. She was partially clothed and her body was in a severe state of decomposition because the condo's thermostat had been set to 80 degrees Fahrenheit or 26 degrees Celsius. Despite the advanced decomposition, it was clear that this hadn't been a medical event or accidental death. Lisa's shirt had been pulled up over her head and her face, neck, and torso were covered in stab wounds. 
Inspector Ronan Shouldis, who was one of the investigators to arrive on the scene, never forgot the brutal nature of the murder. In his opinion, it appeared as if the killer hadn't just wanted to take Lisa's life. He also wanted to mutilate her body once she was dead. He said, quote, It was unusual to have a female victim who had been so savagely dispatched. It didn't seem like a random act of violence. It seemed as if the killer had a personal grudge against Lisa. Although investigators didn't notice it at the time, Lisa's family were quick to point out that Lisa's long hair had recently been cut. Usually, Lisa wore her hair down to her waist, and she was very proud of how it looked. Her family argued that Lisa would never choose to cut her own hair off, and they believed that the killer had cut it themselves, taking it as a trophy from the scene of the crime. An examination of the crime scene added to the theory that the attack hadn't been a robbery gone wrong. Lisa's apartment had always had a cluttered appearance, and police officers on the scene noticed that while it was slightly messy, it didn't appear to have been ransacked by the killer. There were only two things missing, Lisa's favorite black gym bag and her set of keys. However, it was clear that the attack itself had been messy, and that Lisa had fought back against her killer. Her hands were covered in a large amount of defensive wounds and the blood spatter was extensive, covering her bed and the carpet nearby. Investigators collected a number of blood-stained items for further testing. Lisa's bedsheet and pillows, a pair of underwear that had been ripped and covered with blood, and two small band-aids that had been left in the toilet. Suspecting that the killer may have tried to dispose of the band-aids by flushing them down the toilet, Investigators searched the toilet bowl for fingerprints and found a partial print on the underside of the toilet seat. Inspector Shouldis repeatedly compared the fingerprint taken from the toilet bowl to a database of criminals and suspects. However, he was never able to find a match. The police quickly became aware of Lisa's neighbor, who had recently been alarmed by an attempted break-in where the perpetrator had left a smear of blood on his door. Noticing a similar smear on the door of Lisa's condo, they took swabs of both doors for comparison. Another neighbor reported waking up in the early hours of Sunday, May 17th, hearing a loud noise coming from Lisa's apartment. It was so loud that he opened the door of his condo to investigate, but he didn't see anything out of the ordinary. After he closed the door, he heard doors slamming nearby and then the sound of somebody running downstairs. Lisa's autopsy revealed that she'd received a total of 21 stab wounds on her upper body. It appeared to have been a frenzied attack, with Lisa lifting her arms and trying to protect herself while her attacker stabbed her in the chest, neck, jaw, and face. Out of the 21 wounds, three had penetrated major veins and arteries, which would have caused death by blood loss in only a few minutes. Because Lisa's body was so severely decomposed, the autopsy left several questions unanswered. The medical examiner was unable to pinpoint the day and time when Lisa had died, and despite the blood-stained underwear found by her body, they couldn't definitively say if she'd been sexually assaulted during the attack. There was an abundance of physical evidence at the scene, and because of resource shortages and the time pressure to find the killer, it would be impossible to test every single item at the scene looking for DNA. Three forensic analysts were assigned to the case, Ralph Witten, Pam Hofsass, and Alan Keel. The team of analysts were able to narrow down a list of items which were most likely to contain DNA evidence. Alan Keel had one item which he was particularly interested in, a pillow labeled as Pillow Number 22. 
The pillow had a large transfer blood stain, which had occurred when the pillow was moved or touched, as well as some separate blood stains which had fallen onto the pillow as small droplets. The different blood pattern made Alan believe that the blood came from two different sources, meaning either the same person at different times or different people at the same time. In Alan's opinion, it was possible for the smaller droplets to be the killer's blood, as it was likely that he would have become injured during the prolonged attack on Lisa. Alan extracted DNA from the blood stains on pillow number 22 and was able to create a partial DNA profile. Just as he'd suspected, the blood came from two sources, Lisa and an unknown male. While the analysts were combing through the crime scene, homicide inspectors Armand Gordon and Curtis Cashin were working their way through a lengthy list of witnesses trying to recreate Lisa's last hours in order to narrow down a time of death. The inspectors spoke to all of the guests at the dinner party Lisa had held, including her mother, who had been the last person to see Lisa alive. But they didn't just want to talk to the people who'd seen Lisa in person. They were also interested in anybody who had contacted her shortly before her death. After examining Lisa's answering machine, Inspector Cashin made a list of everybody who'd called her over the past few weeks. A total of 40 people. On the evening of May 16th, while the dinner party was taking place, an acquaintance of Lisa's had left a message on her answering machine saying, quote, You know how it goes, Takeda. Hello, Lisa? Are you home? The acquaintance was Albert Robinson, a man who had previously expressed that he was romantically interested in Lisa, but she had never returned his feelings. He and Lisa had been co-workers and had quickly become friends who still regularly met up for lunch or coffee. The inspectors were suspicious of Albert because of his unrequited love for Lisa, but he was eliminated as a suspect when his DNA sample didn't match the male DNA left on Lisa's pillow. Another suspect, Albert Caddo, had recently met Lisa at work and had asked her out on a date. They planned to meet up for dinner the week before she died, and she even invited him to the dinner party on May 16th. Lisa had even talked about her upcoming date with Albert Caddo the last time she met up with Albert Robinson. However, the date never ended up happening. Lisa stopped returning Albert's calls, and he decided to meet up with his brother instead. Just like Albert Robinson, Albert Caddo's DNA and fingerprints weren't a match to the killers. In total, the inspectors requested DNA samples and fingerprints from 10 male suspects. None of them were a match to the DNA on pillow number 22 or the latent fingerprint on the toilet. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch -ch -chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No there was another man who had repeatedly called Lisa, Anthony Quinn Hughes. He had recently called her twice, once on April 30th and once on May 18th, two days after she'd last been seen alive. But unlike the two Alberts, Anthony was never considered to be a suspect. DNA technology continued to advance and in the late 1990s, a new testing method called short tandem repeats or STR was able to be used in criminal cases. The killer's DNA from pillow number 22 was retested and a new STR profile was created. For more than a decade, the STR profile didn't match any profiles in the database. 
Then, in 2011, there was finally a match. It was what investigators called a cold hit, when a perpetrator is able to be connected to a crime scene even though the case has no current leads. When a laboratory notices a cold hit, they carry out further tests to confirm the connection, and then notify the investigators working on the case. After the confirmation tests were carried out, the forensic experts were confident that they had found the perpetrator. The DNA on pillow number 22 was an exact match to the STR profile of Anthony Quinn Hughes, the man who had called Lisa multiple times but was never considered to be a suspect in her murder. He had been arrested on unrelated charges, resulting in his fingerprint and DNA being added to the database. Knowing that Anthony had just become their key suspect, the inspectors compared his fingerprints to the latent print from Lisa's toilet. The print was a match to the middle finger on Anthony's right hand, with identical features in 14 key areas. It was enough evidence to arrest Anthony for Lisa's murder, and when another DNA swab was taken, it was once again a match to the DNA left at the scene. The crime lab supervisor, David Jackson, calculated the probability of a match at one in several quadrillion. Once he was arrested for Lisa's murder, Anthony decided to waive his Miranda rights and spoke to the police. He was able to positively identify Lisa in a photo, but said that although they dated when they were teenagers, he hadn't talked to her since the late 1980s, a decade before she was killed. Inspector Pam Hofsass, who had worked on the case since the beginning, told Anthony that there was evidence placing him in Lisa's apartment, linking him to her murder. Right after receiving that news, Anthony asked for a pen to write something down, and then began to stab himself in the abdomen and neck with the pen, repeatedly saying, quote, I want to die. Unfortunately for Anthony, the stab wounds weren't enough to be fatal, and he was charged with murder. In December of 2015, Anthony's trial began. Anthony's defense relied on the argument that he was a non-violent person who was physically incapable of overpowering and killing Lisa. Five years before the murder, Anthony had been diagnosed with myasthenia gravis, a type of autoimmune disorder that leads to muscle weakness. Reportedly, the muscle weakness eventually led to Anthony having to resign from his job. But although myasthenia gravis was incurable, it was able to go into complete remission with the right medication. In 1998, Anthony had seen his neurologist for an assessment which the doctor described as unremarkable. Because his condition was well-managed, the neurological testing found that Anthony had good strength in his limbs and hands, and that the medication he was taking was keeping his symptoms controlled. However, the neurologist did note that Anthony struggled to use his arms and hands for repeated movements over a longer period of time. The defense also argued that Anthony wouldn't have been able to carry out the stabbing because of his shoulder injuries. He'd torn the rotator cuff tendons in both shoulders, causing him to have surgery to repair the damage. But once again, despite reporting these injuries, Anthony had remained physically able to carry out heavy lifting. Anthony's ex-wife, who he had divorced in 1999, testified about Anthony's myasthenia gravis diagnosis, confirming that the disease had caused him to resign from his job. Although a significant amount of time had passed since Lisa's murder, Anthony's ex-wife couldn't remember any incidents in 1998 where he had come home injured or later than expected. Since his arrest, Anthony had always insisted that he hadn't talked to Lisa in years, repeatedly stating that he had never been inside her condo. At trial, his insistence worked against him. 
He attempted to argue that the DNA on the pillow didn't mean that he had killed Elisa, because it was impossible for DNA analysis to prove the date and time when DNA had been left behind. Because his DNA had been found on pillow number 22 inside Lisa's apartment, he was caught in a lie. It didn't matter to the jury when exactly the DNA had been left there. What mattered is that the key suspect denied ever having been inside the condo when DNA proved that a significant amount of his blood had been found there. Anthony's story that he hadn't communicated with Lisa in years was also proven false because of the two times he had appeared in her caller identification records. The prosecution believed that Anthony had continued to be romantically interested in Lisa after their high school fling and that the two had met up on the weekend that she died. That was confirmed by guests at Lisa's dinner party who had gotten the impression that Lisa had a date coming up, although she never told them who she was seeing. Enraged that Lisa had rejected him, Anthony had then lashed out and stabbed her to death. They agreed that Anthony should be convicted of Lisa's first-degree murder. However, they were unable to reach a verdict on the other charges Anthony faced for attempted rape because there was a lack of evidence proving that Lisa had been sexually assaulted. The judge decided to declare a mistrial on the count of attempted rape and reduced the charge, only sentencing Anthony to 16 years to life for second-degree murder. Anthony appealed his conviction, claiming that his rights had been violated by the 13-year delay that had passed between Lisa's murder and him being charged. He argued that because of the delay, prejudice had been introduced into the case, denying him his right to a fair trial. In 13 years, the witnesses' memories of events had become less clear and some of them, such as Lisa's now elderly mother, had changed details in their stories. Over time, some key pieces of evidence, such as Lisa's computer, had been lost. But did that change his DNA and fingerprints somehow? No, of course not. Anthony claimed that investigators had made an error in 1998 when they had disregarded him as a suspect and failed to contact him. He had never had the chance to tell them what he'd been doing or where he'd been the night that Lisa died, and now, with 13 years having passed, he claimed that he and his ex-wife could no longer remember whether or not he had an alibi for that weekend. He also argued that investigators had missed their chance to collect his DNA when he had been arrested for burglary in 2002. Despite those arguments, Anthony's motion was denied. The trial court came to the conclusion that the delay hadn't been due to poor investigation or negligence by the investigators. It had simply been that, at the time, they hadn't had enough evidence to make a conviction. Because Anthony hadn't been a suspect at the time, investigators had no reason to collect his DNA after the burglary in 2002. To this day, Anthony Hughes maintains that he is the victim of injustice and that he had no role in Lisa Valdez's murder. Somehow, his DNA magically appeared in her condo and his fingerprint on her toilet. Sure. He is incarcerated in San Joaquin County, California, and in 2024, he will become eligible for parole. Hopefully, this lying monster will be denied. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. This website is set up so that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught seeking help. 
If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility. Call 911 or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline by simply dialing 988 in the United States. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you may be facing. If you are a member of the LGBTQ community and suffering from discrimination, depression, or are in need of any support, please contact the LGBT National Hotline at 1-888-843-4564 or go to lgbthotline.org. Thanks so much for letting me tell you this story. If you enjoyed it, subscribe on whatever platform you're on, hit like, rate us, or leave us a comment. You can check out our other show, Somewhere Sinister, on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, check out our merchandise at thisismonsters.com. The link is in the description. Thanks again, and be safe.